this wasn't supposed to be funny. But since I'm not getting any younger, in an attempt to stay close to those who actually are young, a couple of weeks ago, I slipped into the back uh, of a meeting of, of college students. And I did what they did. When they sang, I sang. And I'll admit I was a little bit self-satisfied when I persevered in the singing. But my 18-year-old daughter, who was with me, said, this music is way too loud. She said, you can stay if you want to, but I'm leaving. And she did, but I didn't. I stayed and I kept singing. And after the singing was over, the speaker came out. And he began to describe to this gathering of college students all the good that had been done with the money that they had collected in their meeting. And I was eager to hear how much money these college students had given. You know, the warm fuzzies started to wash over me. And I was ready to fight anyone who said anything disparaging about the youth of today or labeled them self-centered or narcissistic. I looked around the room. I said, I love you guys. But then my emotion was interrupted by the speaker who continued. He said, because of you and because of your radical generosity, $200 was collected for the homeless. I thought, but... But wait, $200. I looked around the room and I estimated there were almost exactly 200 students there. And so I did the math in my head. 200 students, $200. That's $1 per student. I'm pretty quick that way. Now, if synonyms for generosity are lavishness, magnanimity, munificence, open-handedness, free-handedness, unselfishness, bounteousness, should contributing one dollar be called generous? If synonyms for radical are exhaustive, sweeping, far-reaching, wide-ranging, should giving one dollar be called radical? And then, of course, you put the two together, radical generosity and its wide, sweeping lavishness. Listen, that the students gave anything at all, that is wonderful. That's not my problem. I kept getting stuck on this phrase, radical generosity. If radical generosity is used to describe a gift of $1... What's going to be used to describe a gift of $100 or $1,000 or $10,000? And if later that same evening that speaker wanted to challenge those students to radical commitment to Christ, what would that mean to them? A dollar's worth of commitment? Well, then my mind left that place and went to the other big word that I already said this morning accidentally. Awesome. Everything today is awesome, is it not? Girl, are those new jeans? They are awesome. Dude, taste that burger. It is awesome. Hey, I'm getting off work an hour early tonight. Awesome. Really? If synonyms for awesome are breathtaking, awe-inspiring, magnificent, stunning, staggering, fearsome, mind-boggling, jaw-dropping, how can jeans and a burger and an hour off rightly be called awesome?
awesome. And if those things are awesome, what word is left to us to describe God? See, ours is a bombastic culture. And if by bombastic we mean high-sounding with little meaning, high-sounding with little meaning, you know that's true. We become numbed and deadened to words. So in order to get our point across, we have to be bombastic. We have to be hyperbolic. We have to be sensational. But then everybody knows you're just being bombastic and hyperbolic and sensational, and so nobody really believes what you say. Our passage this morning, it's very simple. It's uncomplicated. And it challenges us to be thoughtful about and careful with our words to say what we mean, and to mean what we say. In other words, the passage calls us to be people of truth and people of commitment. And that's what we need to be. So toward that end, if you haven't already, I ask you to take your Bible and turn in the Old Testament to the book of Deuteronomy, the 23rd chapter. If you don't have your own Bible, there should be one there in the pew in front of you. And when you found Deuteronomy chapter 23... I'm going to ask you to stand as we hear read together the word of the living God. Deuteronomy chapter 23, beginning in verse 21, this is the word of the Lord. If you make a vow to the Lord your God, do not be slow to pay it. For the Lord your God will certainly demand it of you and you will be guilty of sin. But if you refrain from making a vow, you will not be guilty. Whatever your lips utter, you must be sure to do, because you made your vow freely to the Lord your God with your own mouth. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you, thank you that we hold your truth in our hands. Thank you that you have not left us alone to live life in and unto ourselves. You've guided us through your word. You lead us into truth. And so we pray now, Spirit of God, that you would teach us your truth this morning and cause us to have a hunger and a desire in our hearts to live our lives according to your truth. So we submit ourselves now to the truth of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. You may be seated. For the past couple of weeks, we have been using the Word of God to orient our perceptions when they are not in line with Scripture. We saw a couple of weeks, first and foremost, that we have to have the right perception of God. And to always remember that God is complete in and of Himself. He is not dependent on us for anything. And what do we call that? I love you. Yes, the aseity of God. And Scripture reminds us in Psalm 50 that the world and everything in it belongs to God. So that's the proper perception that we should have of God, the owner of all things. When we rightly perceive that truth about God, then we also rightly perceive the truth about ourselves and what we have. All the resources that we have, all the gifts, all the talents that we use When we rightly perceive them, we realize that they are on loan to us from God. And those opportunities that come our way in life, 
They are a result of the work of the sovereign God providing those opportunities for us. And so when we have the right perception of God and ourselves and what we have, we then become the generous, compassionate people that God has called us to be. Truly, we care for those who are truly in need. And we seek to use what God has blessed us with to be a blessing with them, for them, to be tangible, visible expressions of generosity and compassion that reflect the heart and the character of God. This morning, we have to continue to orient our perceptions. When we perceive God rightly, we are careful with what we say. When we perceive God rightly, we are careful with the words that we speak. We refuse to be bombastic like our culture, speaking high-sounding words that really have little meaning. We refuse to be sensational for the sake of being sensational. Instead, we're very careful with our words, what we speak. Look with me in verse 21. If you make a vow to the Lord your God, do not be slow to pay it. It doesn't take much explanation. A vow is simply that. It is a promise. It's a promise that people make to God. It's something they give to God, they promise to give to God, something they promise to do for God as a sign of devotion, as a sign of love for God. That is a vow. Now look in verse 22. If you refrain from making a vow, you will not be guilty. See, God doesn't require that we promise Him anything. God doesn't require that we make a vow to Him to give Him something or do something for Him. He doesn't require it. It's unnecessary. Now look in verse 23. Whatever your lips utter, you must be sure to do. If out of love for God, if you're overwhelmed because of His faithfulness to you and provision for you, and you decide, I'm going to make a vow to God, I'm going to promise to do something, I want to promise to give Him something, then you must do it. Because this passage also tells us that if you fail, if you fail to keep a promise you have made, you will be guilty of sin. Now why? Why in the world does that matter? If vows are voluntary, if God doesn't require them, then then why is it a sin? Why does God care if we don't keep that promise? Since we already know about the aseity of God that He doesn't really need anything from us, God won't be at a loss. God won't lack anything He needs if we don't pay up on our vows, keep our promises. So why does it matter? Well, keeping our vows matters for at least three reasons. At least three reasons. And the first one is this. It matters so deeply because everything that is certain for us in this world Everything that gives us help, everything that gives us hope, everything that gives us joy or peace in this world, all of those certainties are based on the promises of God. God's promise to us, His covenant with us. And so God cannot allow us bombastic and sensational as we are. 
non-committal as we are, to water down or to drain away the meaning of this very important thing, a promise, a vow. Because all our hope, all our faith, they're based upon the promises of God. As we so often do, we need to do again this morning. Let's go back to Genesis chapter 15 and look at the covenant that God made there with Abraham. When God made that covenant, it was dramatic and it was graphic because God required that all the animals that Abraham had collected as part of this covenant-making process, that those animals be cut in two from head to toe. And those equal parts were to be laid out mirroring each other. And those parts of those laid out animals were to make a pathway, an aisle between them. And then God himself, in the form of a smoking pot, and you know the story, he is the one who made his way between those animal parts. In the culture of the day, the person who did the walking down that path, who walked through those parts, that was the person who was making the promise. And he knew as he walked down that aisle, dead animals to his right and to his left, that he was giving permission to the person to whom he was making a promise, permission to do to him what had been done to those animals if he failed to keep his promise. And so covenants were not entered into lightly. And the drama of that covenant making reminded both parties to keep their promises that they made to each other, to keep covenant with one another. The amazing reality of God's covenant, the truly awesome part of it, is that God took the initiative in making that promise. God took the initiative in entering that covenant so dramatically. God didn't have to make that promise. God didn't need anything, right? God didn't need anything. Abraham was the one in great need. Abraham and his descendants after him, they were the ones in great need. And yet it's God who made the promise and walked through the parts. That is the wonder and the awesomeness of God's promises. He initiates them when he didn't have to. But since God is perfectly holy, and since as a holy God he cannot and he will not dwell in the presence of sin, God's justice requires that sin must be removed, it must be carried away from anyone who would enter into his presence. The wages of sin, as we know, is death. So Adam and Eve incurred that debt for all of us. Adam and Eve put all of us in debt when they disobeyed God. When they ate from that tree that God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of that tree. And if the wage is not paid, then death must certainly come to all. Eternal exclusion from the presence of God. And so comes the just requirement that payment must be made for sin. Because God is a just God. But God is also loving. And because God is loving, He determined that those created in His image, you and me, those created in the image of God, would not have to die eternally. 
Instead, they can live in his house with him forever. So, in the garden, God's response to Adam and Eve and Satan in the aftermath of that devastating moment when sin entered the world, God's perfect world, for the very first time, God's response was the first promise of the gospel. And God said to Satan, And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. He, he, the coming one, one is coming, one who is coming who will crush the head of Satan. Death will be defeated, God promised. Thank you. Come on, Presbyterians. <laughs> Death will be defeated. God has promised. Good news. Throughout the Old Testament, God continues to, to, to flesh out that promise. We know that the one coming will be the Messiah, the Savior. We know that this Messiah will be a king. We know the Messiah will be from the line of King David. And then somehow, in some way, this king, the Messiah, will reign forever and ever and ever. God promised, and everything God promises, He does. And so, Jesus, the Messiah, the Word of God, the true communication of God, He came. He came because God does not speak meaningless promises. God is not bombastic. God is not sensational in order to get people to to love Him and serve Him and follow Him. If God's promises don't mean anything really, if they are only awesome, as we use the word awesome, if they reflect radical generosity as we define radical generosity, then all of us are in trouble. But we're not in trouble, are we? Because God's promises are not empty. What He promises, He performs great is the faithfulness of the Lord. He fulfills every promise He has ever made to us. And that's why it's so important. And why God commands that if we make a promise, we keep it. Everything of true value, everything of importance in our life, all the hope that we have is based on the promises of God. And we cannot dishonor what a promise is or render a promise meaningless by not doing what we promise to do. Secondly, keeping our promises is important because when we keep our promise, it reminds us and ensures us that our perspective of God is the right perspective. We remember our view of ourselves and the lives that we live in this world. They're based on who we perceive God to be. Who must you perceive God to be if you make a promise to him and don't keep it what do you think of God if you make a promise to him and don't keep it perhaps the most famous of these promises are what's called the 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 foxhole prayer or the foxhole promise in the heat of battle the soldier is there in the foxhole literally Wondering if he will live to see the next minute. And so in that moment, the, the last moment he may have left, he, he begins to, to pour forth these vows to God. Lord, if you save me in this moment, 
If you spare my life, Lord, I promise, dot, 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 I, I promise this. I promise that. But then when that moment passes, the fear subsides, life is still his. What happens to the promises made to God? Some of you in this room may have been in a, a foxhole. I don't know. I know most of us have not been. But even though we've never been in the, the foxhole, we too really need God's help. We need God to, we need him to do something for us. We need God to, to give something to us. We need God to get us out of, of a terrible situation that we have gotten ourselves into. Or maybe we just need God to do something on behalf of someone we love. And so we make these promises to God. We make these up. God, if you'll give me this, if you'll get me out of this situation, God, if you do that, I promise, I promise. Lord, I'll be more devoted to you. Lord, I'll never miss church and small group again. Just get me out of this mess. That's the common denominator, need. We need something from God, and so we try to strike a deal with him in the form of a promise. But then we too, like the soldier in the foxhole, when the moment passes, when the need goes away, we have what we want, the situation is taken care of, then what happens to the promises that we made? And why did we make them in the first place? Why do we perceive that God is one who must be manipulated? The God who in his justice and because of his love entered of his own volition into a covenant with us. He does not need to be manipulated to do what he freely wanted to do. To come to our rescue. And so if you're perceiving God in any other way, you are wrong. And why should you keep a promise to a God who can be so easily manipulated in the first place? But see, it's not okay. Why do we think it's okay to make meaningless promises and not follow through? Why do we think that would be okay with God? He has never done that one time. Never in all eternity has he ever reneged on a promise. He values his word and his promises too highly for that. And so God's not going to allow us to dilute the sacredness of covenant with our rash and meaningless words. Perceive that to be true about God because it is. Thirdly, the last reason we'll consider this morning for keeping the promises that we make to God and to everyone else is that our truthfulness, yours and mine, And our faithfulness is the most or one of the most effective ways we can communicate the gospel to our culture. One of the best ways that we can show the transformation that the gospel has brought to our lives. In this sensational, bombastic culture, your commitment to Christ and to your word, it's going to set you apart in an increasingly non-committal generation. Millennials, or Generation X, are those born approximately between the years of 1982 and 2004. How many of you are millennials? <laughs> Almost everybody here. 
going to be good. I came across one article. I love the title. Generation Y puts the X on commitment. <laughs> I love it. I'm not quoting from that one, though. I'm going I'm to read to you from another article. Appeared two weeks ago, November 5th, in the Odyssey Online, Perspectives of the New Generation. Now, everything I'm reading is written by a millennial. It's not about you. It's written by you. And this is what was written. This kind of long, but it's so good. Many millennials can barely make it through a song without skipping to the next one, let alone make it through a book before picking up another. We can open and close tabs on a computer faster than our grandparents can blink. And don't even ask us how many apps we currently have open. We get new phones once every year, and we probably changed our majors at least three times in undergrad. We're the millennial generation, and we're non-committal. Here are five ways this lack of commitment is affecting how we live and maybe don't live our lives. Number one, we are choosing the single life over marriage. (laughs) Everybody starts to sink down their pew. According to an article published by the Pew Research Center, only 26% of our generation is married. When our parents were our age, 36% of them were married. It's not that millennials are entirely against marriage. But we don't like to settle or settle down. We're opportunists. We believe in carpe diem and we believe in love, but not at the expense of giving up our lifestyles. Number two, we're generation job hop. Most of our parents have had the same jobs for 30 plus years. And most of us can barely hold the same job for three Actually, an article published by Forbes said that 91% of millennials, 91%, currently expect to stay at the same job for less than three years. It's not like we're getting fired or asked to leave, but as millennials, we characteristically like to explore other options. We'll just job hob for a bit until we find the one that fits our expectations. Number three. Is this on target, by the way? (laughs) The young and the restless. Millennials are moving a lot. According to a study published by CityLab, mobility peaks around the mid-20s, when roughly 35% of Americans are on the move. We tend to migrate where there's already an abundance of us, craving a fun-loving city full of youth, opportunity, and often a wild bar scene and nightlife. Number four, the age of disaffiliation. Millennials are, millennials are the unaffiliated or perhaps disaffiliated generation. We are generally unattached to politics and religion. As a matter of fact, the Pew Research Center says 50% of millennials identify as political independence. And 39% say they are not affiliated with any religion. And finally, number five. Fear of ownership. Fewer millennials are owning homes and buying cars, opting instead to rent apartments and lease vehicles. Again, we like the idea of being unattached. We can move out of rented apartments a lot easier and get rid of vehicles every time that lease expires just to get a brand new car to lease again. Millennials love the idea that opportunities are always out there waiting for us. We're noncommittal because we have hope 
And hopefully in time, we'll see the value of commitment too. Listen, I read that not because I believe it's true about you, but I read it because you are part of this generation. And I know that you, not being like this, want to reach your generation with the gospel. And I'm just saying that it seems to me that you will go a long way toward reaching your generation with the gospel of Christ when you are a person of commitment, when you are a person of truth, when you mean what you say and say what you mean. You're going to be a standout and people are going to wonder, these millennials are going to wonder why you are different. And you'll be able to tell them it's because of Christ, who he is and what he has done for you. And you are committed to him Not for three years, but for the long haul. Now, you older people, before you get too smug, and I know you're smug (laughs) because I am a little bit, remember that every generation has its faults. You know, we talk about the World War II generation being the greatest generation, and certainly, what a great generation. Commitment marked that generation, sacrifice. But that generation was often guilty of faithfully and sacrificially performing duties for the sake of duty. Big churches were built by them. 50s and 60s. Big programs were well attended. And we know what we say of that generation. Our family members that were part of it, while they were at church, every time the church doors were open, right? That was that generation. But commitment to the, for, for the sake of duty, that's not what the Lord is after. Listen, every time I go visit my mother in West Virginia, there's one thing I do for her on Friday morning. I take her to the beauty parlor. Yes, that's what she calls it, the beauty parlor. Have you ever heard of a beauty parlor? So, so I take that, and the last time I was there with my 84-year-old mother, she was one of the youngest in the beauty parlor getting their hair done. All these old ladies are talking about the problems of different people. And every one of them said, to every person, every problem, you know what they need? They just need the church. They just need the church. There is not one of those women who ever said that what they need is Christ. It was a church. It was an institution. The church would take her. No, no, no. They needed to have a commitment to Christ. So every generation has its weaknesses. Jesus talks about commitment. The disciples, he were walking along, different people came to Jesus. I'll follow you. Lord, I'll follow you, but first let me, blah, blah, blah. Oh, I'll follow you, but first let me, blah, blah, blah. Lord, I'll follow you, but other things have to come first. And Jesus said, no one who puts a hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. That's a good word for millennials. Jesus offers himself to the crowd. He doesn't force anyone to follow him, but he says, if you are committed to me, then you must be committed to me before all else. If you choose to follow me, you must follow me before all other options. You can't follow me until something better comes along and then abandon the plow. No, Jesus says. He's got a A good word for older generations, too. When Jesus talks about building that tower, 
No one builds a tower, Jesus says, without first counting the cost. Because if you don't count the cost and you run out of money and the tower goes unfinished, my heavens, what will people think? They'll laugh. Well, the older generation interpreted that to counting the cost as meaning being responsible. Being physically responsible with our resources. Playing it safe. Counting the cost meant that you were sure to be able to pull off whatever you wanted to pull off with your own resources, just in case God decided not to show up. But that's not what Jesus is talking about in that passage. In that passage, Jesus is talking about radical heart commitment. If you say you are my disciple, I need your heart. And that's the passage where Jesus says you got to love him first. got to love him best. you got to love him before your parents, your spouse, your children. First love. you got to love them more. More than your spouse, more than your children. Love for Christ most and first. It's the heart love and covenant commitment that God is after in every generation and all people. 2 Corinthians 1.20. For no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. And so through him, the amen is spoken by us to the glory of God. God has been true and faithful to his covenant. Every promise God has ever made, he has fulfilled in the person of Christ. And so God calls us to be faithful and true to the covenant as well. If you promise to be committed to Christ, Be committed to Christ. If you promise to trust Christ, then trust Christ. Fluctuating feelings that accompany fluctuating situations in your life and my life, they will always tempt us to break our promise, to not be committed, to not trust And that situation will make you feel justified in not keeping your promise. Don't give in to the temptation. For your own sake. And for the sake of the generation that needs the gospel. And for the generation that needs you to be a messenger of the gospel. For a generation that needs to see real commitment. Be committed to Christ. Be true to him. Great is the faithfulness of God to his covenant. And through his covenant, great is his faithfulness to you and to me. Get your feelings and get your perceptions in line with scripture. I close with this quote from John Piper. My feelings are echoes and responses to what my mind perceives. And sometimes... Many times, my feelings are out of sync with the truth. When that happens, and it happens every day in some measure, and this is John Piper speaking, I try not to bend the truth to justify my imperfect feelings, but rather I plead with God. Purify my perceptions of your truth And transform my feelings so that they are in sync with that truth. Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, we do thank you again in this moment that your faithfulness to us is so great. We thank you that you are a God who, though you didn't have to, you, of your own volition, chose to make promises to us. You bound yourself to us. Father, you determined a way to make it acceptable for us to come into your presence, to live in your home eternally. You didn't have to, Lord, but because you love us, you chose to. And because you are a God of justice, you decided to die yourself on the cross, you, Jesus, to pay the price and the debt that our sin incurred. And so we thank you, Lord, for your promises. We thank you for your faithfulness. We thank you that we can depend on every word that comes from your mouth. Everything you have said, you will do. And Lord, when you promise to forgive us in Christ, we know that in Christ we are forgiven. And when you promise, Lord, to give us peace in Christ, we know that peace is ours. So, Father, we thank you for who you are and for what you do for us. And now, Lord, we pray that you would help us to be faithful to our end of the covenant. You simply ask us, for our part, to put our faith in Christ for our salvation. Christ, the fulfillment of every promise you have made. And Lord, so many of us in this room have said, yes, I believe. I trust in Christ. I place my faith in Christ for my salvation. Then Lord, I pray that you will help us to live out that promise. To be people who live our lives by faith. To be people who trust you in all things. Trust you first for all situations. Father, I pray that as the the watching world looks at us, people we live near and work with and study beside, no matter what generation they're from, Father, I pray that when they look at our lives, they will see our commitment to Christ, our commitment to truth, our commitment to to be the people that you have called us to be. And Father, I pray that that will strike them as odd. And that they'll want to know why we're people who speak truth. Why we're people who are committed in this non-committal generation. And that, Lord, you would open up the doors for us to speak the, the good news of the gospel to them. We pray these things now for ourselves and that they would be accomplished by your power, so mightily at work within us. For we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.